This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Fake News Friday. Swimming through the... You don't really swim through a blizzard of lies. You don't really swim through a blizzard. Swimming through the whirlpool of lies, I guess. We're already cesspool. starting with fake news. Say cesspool. I'm doing... Cesspool. There we go. Swimming through the cesspool of lies. Staying warm through the blizzard of lies. I'm mixing my metaphors left, right, and center here. As you just heard, they're joined in a very special turn of events here on the program by the great Sue Ann Levy, veteran journalist, columnist, former political candidate, and my wonderful colleague at True North on another Friday, November 4th, 2022. Uh, Sue Ann, great to have you on the Fake News Friday hot seat for the first time. How's the week been? It's been very interesting. And I just want you to know before we start that I'm fake too. Every part of me is fake. So I fit in with Fake News Friday. Like just today or has your entire career been like a simulation from Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse? According to my critics, I am a fake, so. Okay. Well, we'll try to find the strains of reality that only uh, the True North uh, powerhouse that is you and I today can deliver to people here. Uh, speaking of the Twitter trolls, let's talk about Twitter here, because this week has been incredible as Elon Musk cements his grasp on the ownership of Twitter. And to my knowledge, he hasn't even made a single change in the overall user experience. Certainly some executives have been fired, but he's talked about making people pay for check marks, which is like either I don't even know if he's trying to troll people or if it's genuinely the policy direction they're going but it has caused like a blue check mark freak out and I know you and I both have the coveted blue check marks but I like to think we aren't exactly part of the blue check brigade like some of our uh, current and former colleagues in media are yeah you know it's a very bizarre reaction actually for the longest time I didn't even know I had a blue check mark or what it meant but uh hey, you know, some people covet it and they think that they're extra special. You know, a lot of the legacy media think they are extra special anyway. So blue check mark just adds to their, their you know, feeling of speciality. So, I mean, they're, they've yeah. gone absolutely nuts. Now, I, is it true that Donald Trump got let back on Twitter? I think they've talked about it. I, I don't think it's happened yet. He, he said that people who were banned or suspended for, I, I forget the wording he used, but it was like minor or something experience uh, infractions would be brought back. He, he said he'll have a, a review and, and all that. But I, to be honest, it's like Trump coming back is going to just absolutely uh, send the world of blue check marks into a frenzy. But the taking their money... I think is particularly hilarious because the latest uh, version of the policy, I think, is that to keep your blue check mark, you're going to have to pay $8 a month. But it also sounds like everyone will be able to, even if you're not a celebrity or journalist or, you know, former county dog catcher, you'll be able to pay the $8. And if you prove your identity, you'll get a check mark. So it's going to be a, a symbol of you being a real person, not just this thing reserved for the elites. And the uh, blue check brigade in Canada 
has been particularly exceptional in its response. I want to read a couple of them here. Uh, Ian Hanamansing of CBC, uh, his was a bit tamer. He said, I don't know how this will end for now, but let's hope good, thoughtful people can overcome the noise. So he's, he's taking a bit more of a hopeful approach. David Aiken of Global News, where I used to work, says, once again, Elon has it backwards. Pay us blue checks, $20 a month, and maybe we'll stay. Every ad agency and media organization has the analytics. There's no business case to be made to pay for a blue check. So David Aiken is saying that he is providing such a critical and pivotal public service to Twitter users that he should be paid $20 a month for the privilege of his voluntary tweeting. Would, would you pay $20 a month to see David Aiken's tweets? Absolutely not. Actually, he's blocked me, so I can't see them anyway. I, so I so yeah, he should, yeah he, you, you shouldn't be yeah. able to block people if you're getting paid to tweet. Exactly. So, uh, you know, the blue check mark, it should come with some conditions. First of all, if you're going to have to pay for a blue check mark, and I don't suspect that's going to happen, but, you know, there's a lot of anonymous trolls on Twitter who take a great stabs at, I know at me, and I'm certainly, I, I'm certain at you as well. Mm -hmm. and say some pretty horrific things. And they do that from behind their veil of an anonymity. And, you know, if the blue check mark ends that, I mean, I, I, I've always stood up for what I believe in and, you know, my name is out there and yours is as well. Um, and so, you know, if it, if it gets rid of those anonymous trolls, so be it. Um, I wouldn't, and the other thing is, as we said, David Aiken has blocked me. Anybody that they don't like who criticizes him or says something that, you know, he, he's well known for blocking people who criticize him, as uh, do INDP politicians. I have a whole host of them who have blocked me. So if you want to be on Twitter, you want to have your blue check mark, you're not allowed to block people. So I think it's not a bad idea if. The, you know, under those conditions. Yeah, I mean, the idea, and I don't even know if it's serious or if he's just so offended by the concept of having to pay that it's just his natural response. But it's like, there are people with blue check marks who are the reporter for a newspaper that has a circulation of, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand in a smaller town. And I'm not begrudging them. I'm just saying that they aren't hugely influential Twitter users. And then there are like, you know, the Kim Kardashians and the Justin Bieber's who have millions. So the idea that like any one of them is providing an equivalent service that should be, you know, they should be compensated just for being on the, on the Twitter machine is I think a bit bizarre here. And I think there's a tendency in general, and this is not about David Aiken, by a lot of people in media now to confuse Twitter with working and Twitter with reporting. And it's not to say that live tweeting proceedings isn't a key event, but there are some people where it's like, I'm not sure they're doing much more than just sitting on Twitter all day. And I think that's the mindset here is that so many of them just view it as this, this basically this part of their existence. Yeah. And I, you know, when I, I was in the business for a long year time, or I've been in the business for a long time, 32 years. When I started out, we didn't have social media. We didn't have it till 2000. I think it was, I first went on Twitter in 2009 when I ran for the conservatives. And so I used it to tweet my stories, to promote them. It was one more forum, but you're right. A lot of them do use, I can think of one particular uh, TikTok star in Ottawa. He uses Twitter a lot to promote whatever. Now, I mean, I, I do say the odd thing controversial on Twitter, just the odd thing um, without writing a story. However, um, I'm not full time in the mainstream media anymore. And I think you're right about that, that that has become their way of conveying 
what is going on, whether it's covering a hearing as you are, the Freedom Convoy, or anything else. Well, and it raises the question. I mean, I'll, you, I, I don't want to pick on David Aiken, but I'll, I'll raise the, the, the David Aiken scenario here. So let's say David Aiken, with his blue check mark, is tweeting away while he's doing his work. Who gets the $20 a month that he thinks he's owed? David Aiken, the individual, or Global News? And, you know, who's the owner of the account? It's him personally, I presume. But, like, are we talking about just making this part of the mainstream media content platforms? And that is why I think a lot of these people that are demanding that they be paid for tweeting or like I feel like they're almost trying to do an end run around their the outlets that they work for when they say no 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 I want to get my salary there but I also want to get a, a check from Elon Musk for, for tweeting well in a lot of um, media now I know we had post media we had a social media policy conduct policy so you're still considered a member of whatever media platform you're writing for. So you're right. Yeah, where, you're representing the, them regardless. Yeah, of, uh, where the where, heck yeah. is your money going to go? Am I going to, I'm not going to get, I wouldn't get the $20 personally. It would go to, you know, my employer. So I, I'm not really sure. I mean, it just, it just conveys, you know, the, I guess the absolute arrogance of some of these people who think they are so important that the whole world wants to hear what they have to say. Yeah, and, and you got some conspiracy theories emerging too. Rachel Gilmore, who's uh, also with Global, Global's winning the uh, Elon Musk freakout discussion here. Uh, Rachel Gilmore has said, it would be great if Elon Musk could clarify whether there will still be any criteria for verification beyond having $8 a month. So she's saying like already, no, 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 you, you, you shouldn't just be able to pay. You, you need to be able to earn it. You need to be you know, at that elite level, I, I guess, is how I read it. And then she also writes, if Twitter becomes a platform where anyone with $8 can impersonate a president with a blue tick next to their name, that would be dangerous. So she's interpreting the policy as if I could pay $8 and say, I want to be Sue Ann Levy with a blue check mark and then go out and read all these. You can have it. You can, you can be <laughs> no, your career will never recover if my words are, are put into your uh, Twitter account, I assure you. But it's like, I, I don't know how you get there. Like Parler, for for example, which I, I had when it when it first came out before uh, the whole January 6th thing happened and they, they pulled it offline. And Parler had a thing where you could get a, a, a red badge on your account if you submitted proof of who you were. So you had to, I think, like scan your driver's license. And and it was a way that you were verifying your, your account was real in the sense that it belonged to you. And it wasn't like a, a status symbol. And I, I as I take from what Elon has proposed, that's what it is there. So I would say if you take the anonymity away from the trolls, the user experience is going to be a lot better. I, I agree 100%. And I think that needs to be a, a condition because... And there are people who will just form fake account after fake account after fake account and just to come after specific people. I know I have. Or they'll do a fake Sue Ann Levy account. I've had a few of those. I guess I was told I never made it until I had a fake Sue Ann Levy account. That one seems to have disappeared. But, I, you know, and you see there's a fake John Tory account, which was quite amusing during the election. But Having said it's that, it's actually better than the real John Tory account. Yeah, the fake exactly. John. I prefer I prefer the fake John Tory than the it was real very John funny. Tory. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was very funny. But having said that, you shouldn't be able to be definitely if you have a blue check mark, able to attack people using some anonymous name that people never know. I mean, stand up for what you say. 
Yeah, I, I have a big issue with the, the anonymity on the internet in general, because there are people that stick their necks out every day. And I, I don't just mean me, I mean people that are a lot more courageous than, than I am that stick their necks out at, at great risk. And, and you know, when someone just lobs their grenades from the, the comfort of, you know, rando 17925, it's like uh, there's a bit of injustice there. But uh, uh let, let's turn to the, the Public Order Emergency Commission. Now, this is where I think Twitter journalism does have value because there's so much happening. you got to uh, you know, look, look to uh, sometimes the live tweeting to, to keep up with it. But uh, the convoy organizers were testifying this week, and Tamara Leach uh, just started her testimony Thursday evening. And this is, again, her first time being able to speak her mind because of the bail conditions that she's under since the, the convoy ended. And there is a little bit of an odd narration going on by some of the mainstream media journalists. And in some cases, it's proof that they haven't really followed along with the story too closely. Like there was one, for example, David Baxter, who is a uh, videographer. I think he's actually with Global too. This is like Global is featuring very heavily in our uh, program today. So uh, it's not like we're not doing it deliberately. This is not like my revenge for them firing me. I've had that already. But uh, David Baxter, he, he tweeted out after the Freedom Convoys GoFundMe got shut down. Chris Barber testifies e-transfers went to Tamara Leach's personal bank account and he doesn't know what happened with all the cash. This is a description that makes it sound like Tamara Leach got a bunch of money into her personal account and nobody knows where it went. That was how that tweet looked. And I was in the room when the testimony took place, and I've also literally wrote the book on the convoy, and I was like, well, that's, I mean, that's not, it, that's an example of how something can be, as, as Dan Rather would say, fake but accurate. Like, it's, the words are technically true, but when you string them together like that, they're not, because what actually happened was they didn't have a not-for-profit account set up yet. So Tamara Leach had a, a dedicated personal account to receive the money. She added Chris Barber as a joint account holder, so there would be accountability. And when he says he doesn't know what happened with all the cash, they're talking about entirely different money. They're saying when people showed up and handed cash to convoy organizers or to truckers, he said, I wasn't overseeing that, so I don't know how it was distributed. That wasn't my wheelhouse. And it's amazing how much of an incentive there seems to be for so many in the media to build this very sinister narrative when the facts just don't support that. Well, I think I, I and I've been watching, you've been watching it a lot more closely and you wrote a damn fine book, by the way. Um, I Thank really you. enjoyed it. Um, I think watching from afar, uh, not in the you know the depths of Ottawa, I think there's a, a tremendous, tremendous uh, push by the mainstream media, the legacy media, to prove that they were right. And some of the mm -hmm. some of the testimony, or a lot of it, has come out, you know, showing that the emergency act didn't have to be declared, and that you know it, it wasn't uh, with the bouncy castles and all kinds of stuff. It wasn't, you know, the protest that it was made out to be. And I think the mainstream media will grab at any shred, any shred, like you say, and twist it, manipulate it to make it seem like they were right all along. They didn't do their job in the first place. You did your job and some of the independent media did their job, but they didn't do their job. They didn't bother talking to people. They got it wrong in the first place. And they're gonna be the damn concern. I mean, they're gonna make sure that they, you know, there's never an apology, never admission of being wrong. So they're going to manipulate the truth again to make it seem like they're, you know, that they were right all along. 
Yeah, and that's that's a tremendously astute observation, Sue Ann, because it's a lot like some of the politicians and their COVID measures. Now that you know so much, we've learned about the science has refuted everything they said early on. That they've still invested themselves in this one thing and really can't admit they're wrong without shattering all their credibility. And you know, you look at the media coverage of the convoy. It was there were Russians behind it. It was a foreign influence campaign. It was violent. They were white supremacists. When all of those things crumble. Those stories are still exist, and, and it's like they have to keep fueling that idea that, uh, that, that, that this thing happened. And I mean, an example of this, uh, David Aiken tweeted again, Convoy lawyer Wilson's public order emergency commission testimony pointing so far to three potential reasons to invoke the Emergencies Act. So it's like he's trying to make the case for the Emergencies Act, oddly. Law enforcement leaking info, many groups attended the protest, no single point of contact or control, even Freedom Corp types could not convince the Rideau Sussex group to move. I, I, I don't know how you get from those three things to, yes, the Emergencies Act was justified. It's like, I don't even think one of the government of Canada's lawyers would try to make that direct leap in the way that uh, David Aiken did in the tweet there. And didn't they also... And you can correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they also talk about the fire hoax again? And it's been proven wrong that somebody set arson, that they were still trying to raise that, the specter of that. Yeah, I mean, that was like, that's probably one of the most incredible examples of, of not just media malfeasance, but political malfeasance, because those uh, false reports, which was completely erroneous, uh, completely shattered, were cited on the floor of the House of Commons and committee by politicians who, to my knowledge, none of them have apologized or recanted now that that story ha has crumbled. Yeah, it's just, and as you say, it's just like COVID. Because we're hearing more and more stories of people having these sudden heart attacks, these sudden strokes, and yet I'm still getting those stupid uh, texts from Shoppers Drug Mart from the drugstore saying, come and get your booster, come and get your booster. You're still being pushed. There's still talk about masks. Um, you know, people are still wearing masks, like they're, you know, have mask psychosis. And I think there are certain members of the media and certain politicians who just not, will not let it go. And they have to be proven that they did the right thing. They have to prove, I should say, that they did the right thing. Yeah, and I think it's really incredible. And, and, you know, one thing, like I should say, is that these commission hearings are incredibly grueling. They start at 9.30 in the morning. They go to, you know, on Thursday night when Tamara Leach was testifying, it went till I think, 7.30 at night. And they only took in that time about like an hour and 45 minutes worth of breaks and, and lunch over the course of the day. So there's a lot there. And, and it's interesting because it means that if you're a, a journalist, you've got hours and hours and hours of testimony that you can sort of pluck from to find your story and it's always interesting to see where like a headline will come out of it and I'm like that's that's what you took from today like that's the that's that's the narrative that you extract from this so uh, yeah anyway, welcome I, welcome <laughs> to my world Andrew because I spent yeah. so many years covering city hall and I'd sit through council meetings and then you know somebody would cover some shred they they talk to a politician about some stupid little thing meanwhile ignoring the obscene spending on a huge project so you know, this is the, the situation with the legacy media in Canada today, unfortunately. 
Yeah, that's why everyone knows until the end of time, $16 orange juice. But could anyone tell you the deficit of the same year or something like that? So uh, this one, I, I'm interested in your take on. It uh, goes back to Ontario politics. A lot of the same journalists who I think were cheerleading or certainly running interference for the federal government's crackdown on the convoy protesters are all about charter rights when it comes to the uh, decision by the Doug Ford government to invoke the notwithstanding clause to impose a contract on educational workers in Ontario. Now, again, I mean, say what you will about the notwithstanding clause. I've got significant issues with it. It is a tool available to provinces. And if you don't like that it's a tool available to provinces, then deal with the constitution that Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, imposed on the country back in, in 1982. But it's been interesting seeing just how much of a pretzel people are twisting themselves in on this issue. They totally missed the you know, they are totally disconnected from what Justin Trudeau did with the Emergencies Act. It's like, it didn't happen. He didn't impose this on Ottawa. We didn't have all these lockdowns. They just, that is sort of the narrative has been, history has been reinvented, let's put it that way. But, you know, let's talk to nuance in Ontario. I've spent a lot of years covering teachers unions. Uh, they're intransigent they will find anything, any reason to use kids as pawns. And they, uh, once again, after many lockdowns, kids being out of school for God knows, 200 days, was it more than 200 days? Um, you know, they're not reading the room, the NDP. Uh, it's mostly the NDP. It's uh, some of the legacy media. They're not reading the room. Parents want their kids in class. Kids have, are failing math tests, their, their scores are lower than ever. English literacy, all those things have really plummeted uh, because of COVID and because of the lack of in-class in instruction. And, you know, I think it's a bit rich for all these people to be screaming and yelling about workers' rights. Well, I'm sorry, I, I, in this case, I do agree with the Ford government, with Stephen Lecce, that this has to be imposed, a strong signal has to be sent to education workers because if it's not, the teachers will follow suit. And these are keeper workers. So there are support administrators, EAs, things like that. But the teachers are watching this very closely. So make no mistake, um, they, you know, they're fighting not just for the QP workers, but they're fighting for teachers contracts and they're fighting for, I mean, everything is a ripple effect. And, you know, I feel sorry for kids. Kids are constantly used as pawns. I've watched this over the years in Ontario. Those teachers unions really don't really care about the kids. It's they always say it's all about the kids, but it's not. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and I also think that it's a little cute all the pearl clutching about oh kids must be in school from some of the same unions that were the most outraged by governments trying to eventually ensure that schools stayed open. And and I think trust me, my my primary frustration on that is with the Ford government for locking down and shutting down schools as much as they did. But at the same time, you also have to look at the the unions and a lot of the people that are again getting very pearl clutchy about it right now saying you actually weren't as concerned about kids being in school back when so many jurisdictions were saying it was safe to do so but now it is politically convenient that's the tack you take of oh how dare you uh, you know push, push us into a situation where kids have to where schools have to be shut down yes and the masking and all that I mean I've heard I've seen tweets where they said how how dare they how dare they impose this notwithstanding clause because kids need to learn 
that they have the, you know, that they will have the right to strike when they get older. Well, they're not going to be able to strike. They're not going to be able to get a job if they can't read and write. So that's the bottom line. They got to be in class and they got to, you know, they got to be subject to, you know, some in-class instruction, serious in-class instruction. And this is all political theater, I feel, from the QP unions and uh, from all the activists, mostly the NDP in Ontario who are screaming and clutching their pearls or whatever they wear. I don't know, some beads, worry beads, whatever they wear. Some some of the, the media response to this has been amusing. Uh, Andrew Coyne, who I think is always going to be the one to find like the most obscure angle or connection to a story, which sometimes we need. I mean, he like dusted off the like old school constitutional uh, lexicon here and uh, had in his Globe and Mail column, what Ottawa should say to the provinces, I see your notwithstanding clause and I raise you disallowance, which to my knowledge has not been used in like 106, 107 years. And this is like antiquated section of the constitution that technically allowed the federal government to veto provincial legislation. So he wants to have like federal veto authority over the provinces when they use their veto authority over the charter. And it's like, eventually it's like, well, who has the veto here? Everyone, but the children. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It all comes down to kids being used as pawns by the unions. And uh, I've seen it time and time again. I mean, it was in the 90s, it was, and I don't, I'm, I'm dating myself, but I did cover the province-wide strike in 1997, and they're all standing on the lawn of Queen's Park, you know, demanding their rights, but really it's all about pay, it's all about perks. Uh, Ontario spends an obscene amount on education, and kids are still failing. So what are we saying? What are the, teachers unions are not delivering, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I, I think that's very much true. And and anyone that tries to make this, you know, into some egregious, like, unconstitutional thing, I mean, it's the very definition of the Constitution, to use a section that the uh, Constitution gives you. Like, Liberal MP Mark Garretson had tweeted, uh, just for the record, when Ford Nation used the notwithstanding clause, he effectively gave his government the ability to ignore this document with a picture of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I, I can just restate my response to him, which was, dude, you voted for the Emergencies Act. So uh, take from that what you will. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we always like to end things on a bit of a light note here. It was Halloween at the beginning of the week, so many of you may have dressed up. I was uh, stuck in Ottawa, which is a scary enough place without it being Halloween. But uh, CBC has decided to unironically run in its first person section, which is where people who aren't conventional journalists or columnists share stories from their lives. I am a witch. I'm not evil and I'm not your Halloween costume. So just to preface this, we have cultural appropriation, we have racial appropriation, we have the ban on blackface, which I think is a very good ban. No one should be doing blackface. We have all of these forms of appropriation where we're not supposed to partake in someone else's experience. Well, the witches say they've had enough of their, their culture being appropriated on Halloween. So it's time to ask you, Sue Ann, have you ever dressed up as a witch for Halloween and do you wish to make amends for it? Not only have I dressed up, but I'll get you my little pretty and your little dog <laughs> too. <laughs> that's a, that's appropriation. You're going to get canceled to it. Like you're going to get your check mark taken away. You are going to be absolutely can't you have just appropriated witchhood. I know I'm going to be burned at the stake. That's all <laughs> there is to it. 
No, you burn at the stake jokes. That's appropriation too. You can't do any of it now. I'm like, at the end of it, I don't even know what you have left in society. When even like, because I get like, that was the old line you hear a lot of the time from indigenous people. My culture is not a costume. And it's like, okay. I like, I didn't know that people were offended by like the pointy hat and like the big, you know, warty nose and all of that. But apparently, uh, according to Suzanne McRae, who is a Winnipeg, Winnipeg based, I'm, I'm using the description here, a Winnipeg based writer and activist who practices witchcraft, which in fairness, I think is the only way you can survive uh, a life in Winnipeg. Uh, but she says, every Halloween, we have the witch talk. A witch is not a costume. I call myself a witch to challenge the stereotype of an ugly old woman with warts on her nose making deals with the devil. I, I didn't know witches made deals with the devil, but I mean, it I, turns out I don't know enough about uh, witchcraft. Well, I guess she hasn't seen the play Wicked with the green witch. That's true. So, that is true. So, that is true. So I think she, she needs to get out of Winnipeg and go see Wicked on Broadway. It's actually going to be playing in Toronto. Let's invite her to Toronto to see Wicked. I was going to say we, we might have to fundraise to fly her out, but uh, you know where this joke is going. She can just take her broom. Exactly. I can lend her one. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> well, no, you got to get the broom to win. Well, maybe you can just like fly the broom to Winnipeg to, uh, to pick her up and, and then she can her grab on the broom. Oh. Yeah. And then she, <laughs> well, no, if you fly, you're appropriating her, uh, her culture again. So she says she performs weddings and hand fastings the old Celtic way. I don't know what a hand fasting is. It sounds a little bit uh, uh, raunchy if I if I uh, I don't want to Google it just in case. But uh, she says she uses the word witch as an act of reclaiming and says it's important to remember the near genocide of witches in the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, this is like the only thing Justin Trudeau has not apologized for is the near genocide of witches uh, five, four hundred years ago. Well, I think he's going to have to apologize for that Broadway show then. Wicked, because, you know, <laughs> green witches. <laughs> so let me let me just to, to put a, a pin on this. When Pierre Polyev says he wants to defund CBC and the media freaks out, he should just pull this story up on his phone and hold it to the camera and say nothing else. Like this is like case in point in 600, 800 words, the case for defunding CBC. There are so many cases, but this is a good one, I have to say. Well, maybe we could put a spell. Maybe we could, you know, boil, boil, cauldron, trouble, you know, the whole thing, throw in a few toads and all that. And uh, poof, CBC is gone. <laughs> there you go. So we got like, we got, we got everything this show. We got to, uh, we got Sue, uh, Sue Ann's impersonations and we even got a spell just for good measure at the end there. So uh, Sue Ann, get the, uh, uh, start tweezing those bristles on your broom so we can get our guest of honor to uh, the premiere of Wicked. Do you want a long, Toronto. really long one or? <laughs> well, I don't know if she's bringing a guest. If she's bringing a guest, you need a long one. It's a, a business class broom. Uh, but uh, and remember, we got to do the carbon offsets on the broom just to keep uh, Catherine McKenna and Mark Carney happy. I'm going to have an Air Canada broom because you don't get served anything on Air Canada anymore. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And on that happy note, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Sue Ann Levy joining me. You can catch her fantastic work at tnc.news and you can follow her on Twitter while she still has the the blue check mark. And also I am on the Andrew Lawton show throughout the week. So do come and have fun there, especially as we continue covering the Public Order Emergency Commission. Sue Ann, have a great weekend. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I got to fly away now. Goodbye. <laughs>